This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Cullum Tobin. If you have not yet seen A Guest at the Feast, it's his new essay collection. It's out now. I'm sure you know that The Magician, his novelization, I guess we're going to call it, of the life of Thomas Mann, is out in paperback. And we're going to pretty much stick to those two books today in this conversation. But Cullum, thank you so much for joining us. It is really, really great to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So you've done about a thousand, roughly, essays and reviews over the course of your career. How did we settle on the ones that make up a guest at the feast? Oh, um, it was a sort of effort to do sort of greatest hits where uh, really the rule was, I mean, I read over quite, I mean, I didn't read over, I read quite a lot of pieces I'd written. And if they bored me or seemed dated or had anything wrong with them, they were out immediately. I didn't argue with them. I just put them out. Okay. Therefore, the, the the ones that held my attention and I felt were fresh and I felt, you know, just just didn't. There, there were some I was actually certain were going to be in the book, but then it just didn't work. And so it wasn't hard. And um, that's how the book was put together. Okay. And I am sorry to make a joke about this, but I'm going to do it because I now know more about your balls than I ever thought I would, because you do open with your cancer. And it was the cancer that happened while you were writing The Magician. And so yeah. is this the closest we're getting to a memoir from you? Because you really put it all out in this piece. <laughs> you, you, you really, you do not spare any of the details in this piece. I, the first thing is I promised I wouldn't do it. Uh, you uh-huh. know, I, hate, I hate those pieces. Right. My battle against cancer and all that. And uh, they're, they're either maudlin or they're too technical or they tell mm-hmm. you too much about the author. <laughs> you know, I was on a spring break from Columbia and I just got the first sentence. And it's that first sentence, and it's called It All Started With My Balls. And once I wrote that down, I thought, ooh, you know, in other words, you needn't be maudlin. You needn't be self-pitying. You can find another way into this story that is almost funny. And then you can tell the sad bits, you know, amid the funny bits. But honestly, I'm sorry I had to tell you so much about myself. I left out as much as I possibly could. But I think there are things that people do need to know. Yeah. Chemo, especially. Just what exactly it does, and when people talk about chemo brain or you know this, it's not ordinary, and it needs to be described in some detail. And it has become a sort of common human experience in that we all know someone has been through it. Those of us who have right. not been through it, and therefore, you know, I didn't feel I was um, <laughs> sort of exploiting something, or I didn't feel either. I, once I got the first sentence, I was away, mm-hmm. and once I was away, I was going to publish. You know, it was a when I was finished, I thought, well, it'd be such it's the usual business. You know, it's such a pity not to publish this if I can. So, you know, I sent it to the London Review of Books with a note saying, I'm not sure this is of any interest to anyone. And they were very nice. They put it, you know, they put it at the first piece in the following issue of the magazine. So that was the end of my effort to be private. It's a fabulous, fabulous piece. You couldn't listen to music. You couldn't really, re- you couldn't do all of the things that make you Cullum Tabin. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. The not being able to listen to music is curious because you think, surely, surely, like what's wrong with you? And no one really understood it, you know. And it was, it sounded like a jumble of sound, confusion, and was to get that off the speaker now, irrespective of what it was. There could be the very favorite piece of Brahms chamber music, Brahms trio, Brahms sextet. I couldn't bear it. Now, isn't that the most extraordinary idea? It never would have occurred to me. 
It yeah. absolutely never. But, you know, that frequently happens to me when I'm reading you. You'll come up with a line and suddenly I'll think, wait a minute, Henry James really is a person I suppose I should go back and reconsider all of those novels I wasn't particularly interested in until I read The Master and you made me care about, and I'm not the only person that this happened to, I know this, you made me care about Henry James in a way that no previous teacher or critic or writer could make me care. And that was why I could follow you through this piece. And also I hadn't known you were sick and I hadn't known it had happened while you were writing The Magician. And having read The Magician now, it's hard to imagine that you weren't just focused on the book while you were writing it. It's seamless. It's absolutely seamless. Yeah. There's a moment later on in his life, it would be towards the end of my book, where Thomas Mann suffers from cancer and he goes and gets surgery in Chicago. And I decided this wasn't interesting enough. There were so many other things going on in his life that I was not dealing with illness for its own sake in the book or just because I know something about it. So I sort of left it out. But um, yes, I suppose the, the, um, the effort was to write a book in which you wouldn't notice the author. You know, so the magician is really, I hand the entire business of feeling, knowing, seeing, remembering, noticing over to him. The effort is, it's a thing that might be called third person intimate, where you see so much from his point of view that the illusion is slowly created that you, the reader, are in his mind or you're in his consciousness or you're suffering in the same way as he is. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you do first person singular, the voice is someone else's voice. You're hearing mm-hmm. it. It belongs elsewhere. Whereas this one, he went, he saw, he remembered, he noticed. You're moving in and in and in towards who he is and what he does. It's an intimacy, too, that I think he would have been profoundly uncomfortable with. If anyone <laughs> in his actual life had attempted to do this with him, I do not think he would have appreciated well, it. You know, he, he did write a novel about Goethe um, in old age, Falling in Love, which is a sort of intimate book. And I suppose he, he was interested in this sort of alchemy and the mixtures of alchemy and ordinariness that an artist is. And he did that in Dr. Faustus, for example. Mm-hmm. And he explored his own life um, in a novel like Buddenbrooks, where, right. you know, he, he actually dramatizes his own death. So, so, it's, so it's not as though he was in an ivory tower or he was, you know, he was in some special place away from ideas of self or ideas of revelation. That, that, that there were elements of concealment, very many in him, but we're also in, interested in revealing things. The thing that I like about the tension in The Magician, too, is I never really considered Mann outside of the actual work itself. And you read three biographies and reviewed three biographies of him in a very short span in 1995. So have you really been walking around with the material that became The Magician since 95? Um, yes, I suppose, really since I read his work, which I would have done in my late teens, meaning in the mid-1970s, and I presumed, like you, that he was in his books. If you wanted him, there he was. And he was entitled, he was powerful, he was stable. And then when the diaries came out, of course, you realise he was none of those things, that, that all of the nervousness and unease um, in the diaries, then you discover it's actually in the books. It's in Buddenbrooks, it's in some of that in Venice. And I suppose what began to interest me were also the places. I went to where his mother was born in Brazil. I went to, um, for example, to Lübeck, 
and went to all the man places, um, and especially um, Pacific Palisades in California, where he built a house in 1942. So I slowly built up a sort of sense of him as a sort of shivering human being, as somebody who wasn't necessarily the sort of powerful, stable figure, but actually beneath that, or indeed on top of it, was somebody much more uneasy in the world. How much is Mon defined by place, though? I mean, you've even said you couldn't have written The Magician if he hadn't been in exile. And that seems really, really important to talk about. Yeah, I suppose the exile is the idea not, he didn't really, you know, take uh, America seriously. You know, he no, came he away after, what, 14 years in America without any American friends, really. He didn't really, I mean, he was interested in hot dogs and some movies, but he didn't really take on America. But what happened in America was he began to see Germany in, in a way more clearly or in a way that was really resonant for him. And so he wrote his novel, Dr. Faustus, in that time, which was really a re recreation of the sort of Germany that he lost or Germany that had disappeared. So I suppose the first exile is the exile from Lübeck. In other words, the Mann family went back generations. They owned warehouses, they owned ships. They were powerful figures politically. And his, when his father died, that all disappeared. So in his early teens, the entire rug was pulled from under him. And he went, they went to live in Munich where no one knew them, and where they were really nobody. And they hadn't, of course, as much money or as much power. So it begins with that initial exile from Lübeck to Munich. And then the other exiles begin. Re really, he, he, puts, he settles down, becomes a very powerful figure in Munich. But then, of course, it's so easily taken from him in 1933. Thinking about place brings me back, though, to the second piece in Guest at the Feast, where you're writing about your childhood, you're writing about the homes and the houses and the books that made you and your mom and the books that you found hidden in your mom's closet. And this idea, I mean, you're certainly not living in exile. I mean, you live in New York, you live in Los Angeles, you live in Dublin part time. Yeah. Do I have that right? Okay. You were sort of famously in Barcelona in the early 70s before you wrote The South, all of this. But can we talk about place and your relationship to that very idea and how it shapes the work that you do? Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a biography or an autobiography by, say, by the Polish poet Miłosz called Beginning with My Streets or, and that idea of beginning with my streets. In other words, the first place is the most important one, and that's the small town of Enniscorthy in the southeast of Ireland, where I was born. And um, I'm writing a novel at the moment that's set in those streets, but that that is really where memory begins, and it's where loss begins, because of course I eventually leave it. Um, I'm not forced out of it, but I do go, and I do then later come to regret that, or miss it, or lose it. So that's the first one. The other ones then, I don't think I could have written The South in Barcelona. It was written afterwards. And um, that whole idea of um, needing to lose a place or have that, that it sort of begins to dissolve for you. And that's happening with Dublin at the moment, whereas I'm in Dublin much less than I used to be. And suddenly I can sort of start seeing it or maybe even think of writing about it finally. Your mother, though, had a thing for Saul Bellow and his novels. Um, my mother was one of those women who... Um, recreated herself through books. Right, okay. And where the library was a vital place and where she, you know, instantly developed taste. And she, her taste was not predictable. You couldn't give her this and say, this is how you feel about this. 
And on her own, certainly without any encouragement from me, she found Saul Bellow and she just thought they were great. She loved those oversexed men in Chicago and the women who were, who were had to put up with them. And she, um, you know, I think she thought my books were too slow. And she, <laughs> okay. No, really. And she'd okay. say, um, Saul Bellow, he's so smart. You know, it's so smart and modern. She'd look at me, meaning that I was locked in the 50s somewhere. My books were too slow. I'm just going to sit here very quietly and process that for a second while I figure out how you follow up your mom saying, I think you're slow and quiet. Yeah, but she didn't say that. You see, she'd imply right, it. Right, and right. so it would be very, um, it'd be very tactful, I think. You know, you've written a couple of introductions to Edith Wharton's novels. You've talked about Dickens being an influence. Do you have a Saul Bellow? Do you have someone that you just sort of... Um, Let loose on as a writer and just... I suppose um, Henry James would be one um, that I I would really pay attention over and over to those books. But there, I mean, I'm um, an Irish writer like John McGahan would have been very important for me. Yep. Um, But, um, you know, I, um, I mean, I read a lot. I like a lot of books. I chased down a copy of The Dark because of the essay that you wrote on McGahan that appears in Guest in the Feast. And I have to say the opening sort of smacked me in the head and I needed to sit for a second before I kept going, how old were you when you started reading McGarren? Because I know he's a big deal. You see, and the, the Dark was his second novel. Okay. It was banned in 1966. It was the last big book to be banned in Ireland. And it was a call celebre. And not only did he, it was book banned in the country, but he lost his job as a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so his name became associated with scandal. Right. And it was as though he'd written a dirty book. And yet the book was in paperback in England. So it could be smuggled into Ireland very, very easily. My mother had a copy on the top of a wardrobe with Edna O'Brien and John Updike. And, uh, and of course, it took a long time for distillation, I suppose, for the idea that he really was a serious literary writer. He was a poet mm-hmm. in prose, McGarren. He wasn't right. as he was obsessed with sex or shock or anything like that. Was, the, the prose is very quiet. But you're right, that opening scene of the dark is really frightening. It, it's an extraordinary piece of cruelty and viciousness. And all of that idea of what parents were like in the domestic realm had not been explored in Ireland in any other way. Everyone knew it. It happened privately. It was part of private life. To, to dramatize it in that way was a very, very powerful thing to do. I, I certainly read the book when I, I imagine I was 14 or 15. Yeah, okay. Isn't that partially what you've been doing, though, over the course of the body of your work as well, is just turning a light? I suppose like McGarren, I've not been doing it intentionally. Right. It may happen as a side effect of some book, but it's not the, it's not the intention, it, you know, that, that I'm not interested, really, in exposing areas of Irish life to light. Um, if I, uh, perhaps a journalist could do that better. But isn't that part of the art of what you do? I mean, aren't we looking at, I mean, I'm looking at America now and the sort of fin de siècle movement, a moment that we're having. And it's kind of like, well, I can't wait to see the fiction that comes out of this moment in our culture and our society, because you kind of have to hope that the art can make sense of it at some point. Well, I, I think uh, I, I do feel as an artist, no responsibility at all to make sense of anything. Okay, And I think that your job is the private life. Obviously, the way in which public life affects private life is a crucial aspect of private life. Uh But if you say that your job is to chart what's happening in America in the aftermath of Trump, 
Right. I, I would think I would hope to read a novel without mentioning that. Okay. And you might actually end up getting more from the novel that doesn't explore all that. In other words, I can't tell you who was the Prime Minister of Canada when Alice Munro's stories are set. I can't tell you what's going on politically in Canada. I just know that the investigation of the human heart in those stories is magnificent and magnificently true and sets its own legend in a way. And um, I suppose that's the aim of every writer. I don't know, I really don't know what was going on industrially or economically in France when Madame Bovary is set. But I just know that Madame Bovary becomes more important than any set of, of um, you know, public events. She, it, she is a public event in all her privacy. So, so in a way, you're always playing that game. It begins with Stendhal, mm-hmm. Charter House of Parma, yep. where um, Fabrice is riding his horse. He's in love. He's thinking about love and love and love and a girl. But later he thinks he, he was very near Waterloo. And it was the day of the battle. And there was a lot of noise and people running and all sorts of things. So he may have been, in fact, at the Battle of Waterloo. But he was thinking about love. And so I think that I think as a novelist, you have a duty almost to respond mm-hmm. to that idea, Fabrice, that on the very day where something major is occurring, you were somehow busy doing so. You know, you're in another part of the forest thinking about love or loss or money or summer or something. Or whether or not you want a snack. I mean, whether or not you're hungry. Yeah, exactly. A large piece of the essay collection comes back to popes. It comes back to Benedict and Francis and the investigation into abuse in the church in Ireland. Do essays allow you more freedom to look at where you are in the moment? I mean, you were writing about Francis at the time. You were writing about Benedict at the time. And obviously he has since died. Um, since we've been taping, but where does the Catholic, you were raised Catholic, but where does the Catholic church fit into the writing now? Is it, does it just sit with the nonfiction work? Does it just sit with the essays? Um, I suppose when it came to the essays, um, they were, they were all commissioned. Mm -hmm. So it's that strange business um, where, um, if you're an editor and you look at me, there are several things I can do. One is I can write about gay life. Yep. And the other thing, how weird, he's also a Catholic. It was began with the New Yorker asking me to write about John Paul II. Mm-hmm. And, I ha- and I had already been following him around a bit mm-hmm. just for my own purposes, just because he was, one, he was one of the big things, you know, in the 80s. This, the crowds could assemble for him. And so I already knew quite a lot about all that. And then I read a lot about him. And of course, it was very interesting just how deep his conservatism was just it wasn't really a response to current events it was really something quite sharply medieval and um and then i went on to write about benedict um who i didn't take at all as seriously it's very hard to take benedict fully seriously and then the simple question with um the current pope francis is um since he was in buenos aires in the years of the disappearances Mm-hmm. This is the heroic presences in the city at that time where the mothers and the grandmothers, that's madres, las abuelas of the, of the Plaza de Mayo, who, who spied everyone to say, where are our children? What was his relationship with them? How come they wanted nothing to do with him? How come they didn't trust him? And yet he's this smiling figure we all love. What was he doing in those years? What happened in those years? I thought that was really worth investigating. It's a great piece. It's a really, really good piece. And I like the way it builds on some earlier work. 
that you had done. That's how you move into Marilyn Robinson and a large critical piece on her and her work, which, you know, housekeeping, when it came out, everyone sort of said this was great. And then she took a very long break until Gilead. And she's, and then all of a sudden we had four novels sort of relatively quickly. Um, but can we talk about you and your relationship to Marilyn Robinson's work? Um, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the two books for me that matter are Gilead and Home. Okay. I admire the paratechnics of housekeeping. It's an extraordinary book. But she come, she goes very calmly in to this very, I suppose, unappealing story. You know, it's not something you automatic. There are two old clergymen in, in, basically in an eternal 1950s um, in this town. Even the town itself doesn't get much drama in the book. It's just the two men and their families and various issues to do with predestination to do with um, faith and various types of faith and a sort of Calvinism, an American Calvinism. And um, she just moves very quietly with absolute confidence from one scene to another in those books, producing an extraordinary quality of light, quality of observation, like etching, like, like a certain sort, of, not of hyper-realist painting, but luminous, luminous realism. In other words, where there's a, there's a constant halo and light over small things in the room, over, over small emotions, over strange memories. And um, I, I think it, it falls, the novels fall slightly off with Lila and I think even more with Jack, those two novels at the end. But mm-hmm. those, those two novels for me re- represent an extraordinary achievement in, I suppose, taking the most unpromising material People, people who have no obvious power and giving them this glow of power. And I suppose part of the reason I'm interested in this is that I come from a similar background where faith was almost taken for granted, where people lived in isolated places, where memories were long, where winters were long, and um, where people had extraordinary attachment to, to their families, to their siblings, to the enclosed world within a single house. So I suppose I've been I've been writing that in a way since I wrote The Heather Blazing in 1992 and finding someone else who had been perfecting it. I mean, I had been trying it, but finding that she had done this and then going on to read her essays and um, her works about religion and about America also interested me. So I, I mean, I mean, for me, she's a sort of towering figure. She's also the only American that you include. I mean, there's the essay on McGurn. There's the essay on the other writer who I did not know until I read. Francis Stewart. Francis Stewart. I'm not the only American, I think, who doesn't no, know who no, Francis no, 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 Stewart you're not is. So, I mean, he's, he's really very little read now, but he was, he was important for me when I was growing up. Can you just bring folks into that piece of it? Francis was born in about 1900. and. Um, he, when he was about 18, he married the daughter of Maud Gaughan, who was the muse at W.B. Yeats, Esalt. And um, he produced a novel a year, really, um, in, the, in the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a marvellous book called Racing for Profit and Pleasure in Ireland and Elsewhere. That was, he was a gambler. He's a very yeah. handsome man. And um, he moved between Ireland and England, and he was a literary gent. He was a friend of Lima Flaherty. And, you know, but in 1939, he got offered a job at Berlin University. And he went to Berlin willingly in 1939. 
And during those years, he broadcast to Ireland from Nazi Germany. When the war was over, he had a new he had a new girlfriend and he tried to come back to Ireland. He went to France first. He was arrested, of course, and held. Very lucky, you know, to get away, get out alive and that. And he got to London and then he came back to Dublin where he became this very gentle, sweet old man who had rabbits and cats and um, talked very gently. And it looked as though he had somehow gone to Germany to find crucifixion, to, to find darkness, a Dostoevskian journey into the cauldron where he would find truth by suffering. But actually, mm -hmm. you know, later on it emerged that he was much more political, he was much more anti-Semitic. That there was a much harder figure than the soft man, soft old man that I knew. So I'm trying to tease out the whole question of, he wrote novels, um, especially in a great novel called Blacklist Section H, where he explores all that area of himself that was damaged, that was dark, that was seeking both redemption and crucifixion. But actually, that wasn't who he was. That was an invent, which is what we all do. We invent aspects of ourselves for novels. But I believed that his novel was fully autobiographical when I read it, where it turned out not to have been. So novels are a way of fooling us, among other things. There are a couple of recent books I'd love to ask you about. One, because I know you blurbed it, and I think you quite liked it as much as I did, The New Life by Tom Crew, who's a young editor at the London Review of Books. And it's pretty great, this Victorian, <laughs> I guess I could call it an epic, but you know, you've got two marriages and a relationship and the trial of Oscar Wilde. And it's really kind of great. And I was hoping you might be able to sort of explain why you love this book as much as you do, because it's a fun read. It was a fun, yes, fun, um, it's, fast it's, it's, read. It's Tom Crew's version of um, mm -hmm. that story about um, gay liberation occurring at the end of the 19th century, where there were other people besides Oscar Wilde, and they were sort of investigating human sexuality, trying to make a case for its complexity and the fact that, we, that, we, that it wasn't a single thing. And what Tom does in the book is he shows how um, these people had strange marriages of their own. They had, you know, there were, there were women who were both brave and uneasy in these relationships. And um, that they were also afraid. It wasn't as though they all of them wanted to go to jail. Like mm -hmm. Wilde, Wilde frightened them all. So right. it's a drama really about how far can you go with an ideology where you are trying to change the world and the world will punish you accordingly. And so it's, it's, um, it's, it's really, it's, it's also a wonderful evocation of London at the end of the 19th century. Um, it's a sort of, people say, oh, only a historian could do it. But the answer is no, no, historians couldn't do it. It's a novelist. So in other words, it's marvelous to see this young historian becoming a novelist, which is probably his true vocation. It's really fun. It's really, I can't recommend it enough. And then Yi Yun Lee, who's a short story writer and a novelist and a memoirist and teaches at Princeton. The Book of Goose. Please tell me you've read The Book of Goose. You must have read The Book of Goose. It's yeah, I know right I have. Over yeah. my shoulder. Well, I, I love this book. I'm hoping you love it as much as I yes, do. I do. Well, I, 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 she has an extraordinary sympathy for anyone. So you can, mm -hmm. she can see the point of view and she can give you the entire point of view of, of really any character at all. She has an extraordinary skill as an observer, as a watcher. Years and years, I mean, really a long time ago, I, I was doing a, um, a, I did a class for a friend of mine, Daniel Alarcon, who was teaching um, outside San Francisco. And um, he said, would, would I mind if a colleague came in? A colleague came in and she watched me and she didn't speak. 
Mm-hmm. And afterwards said something. And I said to him in the car going back into the city, who was that? Because <laughs> whatever way she had watched, I felt she had missed nothing. And that she had not only that, but she'd seen into my soul as I was trying to talk about books. He said, that's a young, she's called Yi Young Lee. Her book is just out. I said, what's her book? And we stopped the car at a bookstore. And I said, I need her book. And I, that was a thousand years of good prayers. Right. And I went back to New York and I was having supper with Barbara Epstein, who was the editor of the New York Review of Books. I said, Barbara, this is this extraordinary book. I'm not making this up, this book, which is a thousand years of good prayers. So that was the beginning of my journey with her. Mm-hmm. Um, that was probably, it's probably 20, no, it's probably 17 years ago. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, I admire everything she does. Are you working, you mentioned you're working on a new novel set in Dublin about the, sort of your trajectory, as it were, but can we talk about it more? Or are you one of those writers who's just like, I'm not talking about it until I'm ready to talk about it? You want to see it? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> That's it. That's so exciting. Um, yeah, so I'm, um, I, mean, I mean, it's like the cancer thing. I promised I wouldn't write a sequel in Brooklyn. I just don't like those sequels. Leave it, you know, let, let, let the reader imagine. But then an idea came into my mind. Not an idea, sorry, an image. I saw something. Yeah. And I went at home and wrote it down. And that has become the beginning of a novel, um, which his working title is Long Island, because they, that's where they've moved to. It's 25 years later, and it's Ailish again. And she's married to Tony, she has two children. And they're all, the Italians are all living in this area of Long Island where there's a sort of cul-de-sac and they've made... Um, four houses which are just theirs and um she lives in one of those houses and the opening occurs when a man comes and knocks on her door and the opening page of the book he comes and knocks on her door and once i had that knock and his face okay. i had the book and I'm, I'm i'm almost finished it oh that's really exciting to hear so is that how the novels start for you that you start with an image yeah yeah a lot of the time a single mm-hmm. thing and from that then you can see but great deals can start to come into being. But obviously with the with the master and the magician, mm-hmm. that's not true yep. because I was working from your know, biographies, from facts, from the books Henry James had written and and and, and Thomas Mann had written. But nonetheless, say with that um with the openings, I would have to wait until they came. I couldn't just force them to start. Are you writing the novels in a linear fashion? Or are you working sort of as things happen and then you move them around as you need to? Um, I have a novel that I sort of left for a while. Most of that's done. I have the opening. I have the opening of a good few things, actually. I, I really do. And um, so when I'm finished this, I'll have to just go and look and see <laughs> what happened. But I, but I also have a good number of short stories yeah. just half done. So, so, yeah, there's always a lot of... Um, I, I I went to visit once the studio of the painter Howard Hodgkin, yeah, London, and he had all the paintings he'd half done facing in towards the wall. I said to him, "What would happen if you put all of them facing outwards?" I run screaming right. because the I suppose the levels of emotion in them right. would be too high. I mean, that's I see your byline constantly in the LRE and and the New York Review, but like I just. The amount of work you produce in any given moment, yeah, is I get up every day, and I work every day, and, and I do deadlines, and I, 
the problem is really that I take on too much and um, I take on anything that interests me. And Mm. then, of course, I have to do it. So um, when everyone else is out walking in Central Park or something, I've got an introduction to some book to do. And, uh, you know, that's just the way it's been. It's fine. There's no point in complaining about it. But, yeah, it it is a lot of work. Wait, does this mean you're going to start writing about tennis too? There was that profile in the New Yorker and you took um, up tennis. <laughs> I haven't written about tennis yet. It's one of the things that I kept to myself. Right. But you never know. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if suddenly we start seeing pieces about tennis from you. You also, I didn't realize this, you started teaching after the master came out. So 05-ish, you start, I I'm sorry, I had assumed you'd gone sort of straight from journalism into doing whatever, and I didn't realize you'd picked up teaching sort of rather late. Yeah, it's, I, I, I drifted into a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, drifted into journalism, drifted in. But um, yeah, I, I did it one semester at the new school, just mm-hmm. one course in 2000. Right. But then, um, yeah, Toby Wolf asked me to come to Stanford um, in 2006. And so that was the beginning of... I just said I'd do that one. It was just 10, mm-hmm. 10 weeks. Right. And then ended up, yeah, on the circuit of that, you know, and, and so I'm not Columbia, but it's, um, yeah, I drifted into it. What do you love most about teaching though? Because you could have drifted right out. I mean, you have plenty of things on yeah. your plate, but um, something well, keeps you. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll, this semester I'm teaching Ulysses to undergraduates at Columbia. Okay. Okay. They're totally dedicated. Everything everyone says about young people is rubbish. They're totally dedicated. They, they really, really know how to read. They mm-hmm. have been reading difficult texts, uh, you know, for a number of years. Yeah. It, so Ulysses doesn't phase them. The fact that it's another country, it's 100 years ago, you know, that none of this phases them. So we, we have a very, it's, it's a very satisfying time. That's really great to hear. If someone's starting with Henry James or someone's starting with Thomas Mann, what do you recommend? I suppose with, with James, I would go from Washington Square to okay. Portrait of a Lady. Mm-hmm. You know, and with man, I would certainly start with with Buddenbrooks. That's what I was kind of thinking you would say, but I didn't yeah. want to be cliche about it because, yeah. you know, the boss. I have a soft spot for the Bostonians, but yeah, that's it's, true it's, too. Yeah. It's not one that you run around saying, "Oh no, this is where you start." It's yeah. just kind of, yeah. and I never did appreciate James. I mean, we were sort of taught him in high school, and the way we were taught him was not. Yeah, it was. I think we lost a lot of the joy of what he was trying to do and a lot of the language. And it was more like, well, do we know what's happening? Can we take a quiz? Do we? It wasn't experiencing the work. It was much more kind of, oh, I passed my quiz. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just... Yeah, I, mean, I read him for pleasure. Right, so, right. The idea of just picking up Portrait of a Lady when you're mm-hmm. 18 or 19 and yeah. just having a long summer ahead and it being the book that really, really mattered that summer. Edith Wharton, too, before I let you go. Yes, certainly um, the um, certainly the Age of Innocence and certainly yeah. uh, um, the House of Mirth. I think those two books are huge achievements for her. It's wild. They really have, they've aged really, really, really well. Yeah. Okay, so you're working on the sequel to Brooklyn, which you never thought you would. Of course, there are more essays coming. There are more reviews coming. Is there something you really want to do that you haven't? gotten to yet just because there's been other work in the way look um they um uh, i wrote a libretto for an opera of the master okay for an italian composer called alberto caruso okay and that was performed for the first time this just in november 
right. at the Wexford Opera Festival, which is a festival I've been attending since I was 16. Mm-hmm. And the idea of going into that opera house and seeing my, my own story being transformed in this way by a composer, by singers. And at the very end of the run, the director wanted to see me and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, she wants me to write some article or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And she said, would you do another? And that was the nicest thing, the idea that, you know, uh, that idea of writing libretti, writing writing for opera. Okay. So, yeah, so, so I mean, among the other things, every so often I stop what I'm doing and I write another scene from for the libretto. And that's very, very satisfying work because in a way, you know, you, it, it's such, it's so collaborative, but it's also, just, you're just the first step. The next yeah. step is the music and the mm. step is the design and the overall step is singers. And so it's, it's lovely. It's really nice. And it was lovely being in Wexford for those few days. Uh, hanging out with everybody and just you know watching the performances and yeah so that that really gets you out of your desk and your 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 solitude and all that that's so exciting to hear i mean i knew you'd written a couple of plays well three plays yeah your first poetry collection was published in april of 22 vinegar hill everyone should run out and grab that um you've been writing poetry since you were 12 you're finally publishing it now, have you published poems as one-offs in magazines or not whatnot? Not much. Or? Bits and right. pieces, but really okay. in general, no. I didn't bother. I think sending poems out, you want to be very brave because you, you're likely to get them back. Right. But it's still disappointing. Okay. And so, you, I mean, I just felt I'm not putting myself through all that. Okay, so librettos, plays, poetry, which actually, why did you po- publish the poetry collection now? I mean, why not? Um, but, well, because at the very beginning, this first six months of the pandemic, I had a big... I mean, really enormous brainstorms with poems okay. and that things came to me that I never thought would come to me. So I suddenly had about 30 new poems or 40 okay. to okay. add to the other ones and we could make a book. Okay. Do you still think poets have it easier than novelists? Huh. It's really odd with poems. They, they, they come to you when you least expect. And you, two months could go by and nothing. Yeah. But suddenly one day you just get this. You write it. Novelists can't do that. You've got to get on with this. Right. You've got to actually work every day. You can't just decide. You, you could maybe wait until the, that for the beginning of a novel, but not actually for the for a whole book. So it, it's odd work for poets because they, they must feel that it might never come again, mm-hmm. that you could be left forlorn on the earth with no more poems. I hope that doesn't happen. Well, I don't I want people too. to run out of poems. I hope that too. <laughs> Callum Dubin, thank you so, so much for joining us on Poured Over. A Guest at the Feast is out now. The Magician in Paperback is out now. Vinegar Hill is out now. And there are, what, nine more novels, two more story collections, nine works of nonfiction and criticism in three plays. Do I have that right? Something like that, sir. Okay. There's plenty to read. Go find it all. Thank you again. This was so Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And I am so excited for you guys to meet our next guest, because if you haven't already, you've heard him compared to Alan Hollinghurst and Colm Tabin, who obviously we started the show with. But Mr. Crew, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to listeners, because this is your debut. This is something I like to do with debut authors. And also give them a little synopsis of what the new life is about. <laughs> um, well, uh... I am an editor at the London Review of Books. That's my uh, that has been my day job. Uh, it's my first novel, 
Um, I've written a lot of essays for the LRB, but um, this is my first novel. It's been about uh, 10 years in the making. I had the idea for the novel about a decade ago. Uh, it's been a labour of love. And it's uh, it's about two men, two marriages and a book. It's about uh, John and Henry, who together in the 1890s write the first ever book in English about homosexuality, where they argue that the law which makes all sex between men a crime should be abolished and that homosexuality is as harmless and innocuous as colorblindness which is a radical argument to be making in 1890s Britain. Um, and that's daring enough, but both men are in kind of complicated, uh, crowded marriages. Uh, John is a gay man who's been married for 30 years, has three adult children. Uh, he's recently met someone called Frank um, and began an affair with him. Uh, Henry has a very modern and egalitarian marriage with someone called Edith. But Edith uh, is attracted to women, and there is a third person in that marriage to someone called Angelica. So, uh, yes, so there you go. You've got two men, two marriages, and a book. And uh, maybe we'll talk about what happens next. Well, here's the thing. It's really satisfying. The new life is incredibly, incredibly satisfying. I also don't want to lose sight of the fact that you're writing about bravery, and you're writing about freedom, and you're writing about consequences. You're writing about the future. These are people who are trying to make the future happen, which is not something that I personally as a reader associate with Victorian England. <laughs> I mean, it is not. It's a whole new way of thinking of Victorian England. And separate from Sarah Waters' novels, because, right, her first three novels, Fingersmith, Tipping the Velvet, and Why Am I? Affinity. They were set in a very specific kind of Victorian England as well. And, and the feel of those books is very different from yours. But I don't really think of rebellious people as being part of Victorian <laughs> England, which I think shows my bias. But you also have a PhD in history. Uh, yes, I do. I do. Uh, <laughs> my, my sins. It's not really about any, but it was a, um, late 19th century Britain. But it was politics rather than uh, so much, much duller than um, my, uh, my current crowd. I'm not sure you can separate politics from what you're doing in this novel, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. No, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, the PhD was very was about kind of formal formal politics, uh, not quite parliamentary politics, but politicians and their relationship with the public. But I completely agree that the New Life is a political novel, and I did have the idea for the novel when I was doing my PhD. So these things are connected. Ten years ago, you get the idea for this book, but. As a writer, as a novelist, okay, because your day job, you're an editor, you're an essayist, you're working with politics, you know, all sorts of things at the LRB. But for Tom Crew, the novelist, when did you know that you could make this into the book that ultimately becomes The New Life? I mean, I think you said you started reading one of the Inspirations biographies. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Yes, that's right. Well, I mean, I've always wanted to write a novel. Well, long before I went to university, when I was a, when I was a kid, when I was about six years old, I said I wanted to be an author when I grew up. So that's sort of been there all the time. Um, and when I was doing my PhD, I thought for a while, you know, oh, I can... I can be a historian and in that way I can combine writing and history and that's a profession, and, you know. 
But then I realized I just didn't want to do that. And it was not not something I wanted to do. And I started writing um, fiction again, which I had written a few years before. And I started sort of playing around and just sort of trying my hand. And around the same time, I must have read this biography of Oscar Wilde just on a whim. And I followed a footnote, uh, I think, and found this man called John Addington Simmons, who I had never heard of before. And I was interested by what I read and found the only modern biography of him that's ever been written in the 60s. And I just sort of gobbled this book up. And it gave me this idea, which I'd never had before, which was that there were gay men in Victorian Britain who were not Oscar Wilde. you know, lot, there were lots of people out there who knew this already, but it was a very um, striking realization. I think because Simmons's life, he actually died before the Wild Trial, um, offered a kind of model of a of a gay life that was just completely different to Wilde's, as open, as sexual, as interesting, um, but never reached a kind of tragedy or a. Um, a doom. He was never in trouble with the law. And actually, unlike Wilde, he had this incredibly passionate belief in what we would now call gay rights. And he was writing about homosexuality directly, openly, not in a veiled way, not in fiction or drama, in direct, you know, political terms, saying this, these laws shouldn't exist. Why what why are you putting these people in a separate category? They're not, you know, why are you failing to understand or explain. And that was, to me, such a revelation coming across this man, um, making those arguments in the 1880s and 1890s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, what I later discovered was that he was not alone. He was at the forefront, but he was not alone. And I was writing these short stories, and I thought, I want to write about gay experience um, in late 19th century Britain in a way that pushes Oscar Wilde out the centre of the story and let other people in. What do we see if we don't see Oscar Wilde? And what if actually we try and dramatise that moment when Oscar Wilde's arrest kind of threw everything under the bus and changed the course of history? Because some of these people were very optimistic about changing people's minds and legalising homosexuality, and that all changed. So that was my that was my big idea, and that's when I when I knew... Uh, I had something I wanted to write about in fiction. So John Addington Simmons is how you get to Havelock Ellis, though, who is roughly the inspiration for Henry Ellis. So that was the next step, really. I knew the sort of thing I wanted to write. I had the figure of Simmons. I had the figure of, you know, the gay man in the 1890s who's not Oscar Wilde. And I was writing these short stories, trying to play around, trying out different ways of writing around Oscar Wilde, you know. And then I remembered, because I must have read it before, that Simmons, uh, not long before he died, had begun writing this book uh, about homosexuality, explicitly about homosexuality, arguing that it should be legalised. And he had done it with a young man called Havelock Ellis, who later became a very famous sexologist, but was at this time just sort of getting going. And I remembered this and I thought, Okay, that's interesting. And then I remember exactly where I was. I was standing at the top of the stairs in my friend's cottage uh, in Norfolk, actually, where where part of the book is set. And 
And I just saw this amazing symmetry that you had John Ellington Simmons, who was a gay man, he was married, he had children. And on the other side, you have Havelock Ellis, who was a straight man, but was married to a lesbian. Right. And you had these two, two interesting marriages that were connected by the book that these two men were writing, but they were invert, inverted uh, mirror images of each other in that way. And because, you know, the word for homosexuality in the 19th century was inversion, sexual inversion, I think it really hit me that there was an inversion, a mirroring uh, in these relationships. Um, and so it was a kind of governing motif. You, you, and and that, was, that was my lightning bolt eureka moment. I like the metaphor of the inverted marriages more than I like the word inversion. And I realize it's historically accurate, but it just, it makes me mad. It's just, it's so dismissive of people. And, <laughs> you know, luckily we seem to be making some progress on that front, but I, I do, the first time I saw it in the book, I bristled a little bit. I was just like, oh, that's just rude. That is <laughs> just rude. And I mean, you said in an earlier interview that you thought at one point you'd picked a subject that was too narrow. And yet I'm reading this book and there's so much resonance with our current moment. So much resonance, this idea that people are actually trying to move forward and make a future and create new definitions of marriage, among other things, and to also lift the shame off of sex. And that is still a radical idea for lots of folks. That is just all of this is you know, you may as well be standing on the ramparts screaming, you know, down with everything. It's fascinating for me as the reader, and obviously I'm getting this in the finished form. I'm getting this after multiple edits and, you know, lots of thought and 10 years of work. But I'm kind of fascinated that you thought that. Yes, it makes me sound like a bit of a dullard, doesn't it? Um, but it didn't, uh, somehow it didn't, I could see in my more optimistic moments, I could see it was an interesting story and I thought and I could see that people would be surprised in the way that I had been surprised by the fact of these kinds of people thinking these kinds of things um at that time you have so many self-doubts as a writer and one of them for me was that just maybe it just wasn't interesting enough or it was just too niche or I don't know it's hard when you're on the inside and particularly maybe because it took a long time I became so accustomed to what I was doing that I just didn't, I just couldn't see it outside of my experience anymore. Um, and so what's been thrilling is, is suddenly realising that actually it's coming, the book's coming out at a really interesting and quite welcoming time for the book. I mean, not always for good reasons, but some some bad reasons. These issues were still dealing with. And maybe because as I wrote the book, I didn't write the book with a plan, which came back to haunt me slightly uh, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I was editing it. You know, these things kind of develop under your hands as a writer. You don't, you know, it's like moulding a pot or something. You don't, you know, the shape comes, emerges. And some of the themes just become clearer as you go. And one of them was the idea of the future or um, what's to come, that better world. And as the story develops, these those questions become sort of more pressing and piercing and they're dramatized in this dramatic way. And I found myself as troubled by some of these questions as my character. I have realized now is that the book is so much about, though it's set in the past, it is about the future and what makes it relevant, I hope, and what I hope make it relevant in the future. Um, <laughs> if I can be that optimistic, 
is that the future is always the future. There is always a future. We will, we are always moving into it, and it it is always moving away. We can never get there. Uh, it changes shape. Um, so that is a very human impulse, a very recognizable impulse. We all want to live in a better world, a different world, in some way or another. Um, and we all sympathize with how hard that is, uh, just personally. I mean, as much as anything, these characters want to change the world, but they want to change themselves and their own circumstances. And that's... <laughs> I think it is. We're staying away from spoilers. You and I talked about that at the before we started recording. And uh, there's a lot that happens. And there's a lot that's surprising. Um, I very specifically mentioned One Wife's speech to you that I quite love because one of the things you're talking about too it isn't just gay rights here we're also talking about redefining marriage and what marriage means for women in Victorian England and you know we still have this idea that marriage is the thing that everyone's supposed to aspire to and listen if you want to get married rock on that's great do your thing i think differently of marriage <laughs> and yet i've been with my dude for 22 years and I'm perfectly okay not being married. And, you know, like I said, if marriage works for you, but this is a radical, radical idea for these women to be like, hey, you got more out of this marriage than I did, or this is not what I want. I mean, Henry and Edith are both very plain spoken in their desire to have an equal marriage where they don't live together, they don't whatever, it's fine. And I love this idea because Victorian England, again, this is the rise of the middle class. This is the rise of, you know, social sort of I mean isn't this sort of the moment where you have like Amy Vanderbilt and Emily Post and all of that kind of stuff or my misdating you know the rise of etiquette and a class awareness and a mobility between classes that you know wasn't previously there yeah I mean the 1890s is such one of the reasons the period interests me is because it is such a a time of ferment um, there's lots of new ideas. There's femi feminism is kind of really taking off in the 1890s. So is socialism, trade unionism, the new drama. You have Ibsen. I read quite a lot of Ibsen when I was writing the book. And, you know, think of Nora in the doll's house, you know, the slamming of the door. She goes off into her new life. Um, you have that kind of new realism, that kind of tangling with big uh, existential questions. You have aestheticism you have which you know wild is an exemplar of um or walter pater these people who say experience is everything you know life is in the moment beauty is in the moment live you know life 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 is the experience to have so there are all these kinds of things all bubbling around at the same time so that that's what makes it interesting to me and what makes what gives the book i hope a kind of overarching mood or atmosphere is that sense of people wanting to redefine life or experience life in new ways. And one of those ways is marriage, you know, again, we go back to, to a doll's house. Um, but lots of women were, you know, you have the new woman, you know, this concept of the new woman in the 1890s, the, the woman with a cigarette on a bicycle, <laughs> uh, wearing, wearing loose fitting clothes, uh, which of course all seems very tame to us now, but was a very serious uh, step forward then and part of that was you know young feminist socialist women 
were questioning marriage and trying to live in new forms of relationship, living outside of marriage. And of course, that came with huge uh, personal risks and personal costs. Um, but these were um, experiments in living mm-hmm. at that time. Um, and of course, one of the things I hope I, I capture in the book is that there is a, there's also a generational divide here, you know, because uh you know in the book i have edith and angelica who kind of represent the the younger generation of women as or john's daughters mm-hmm. but you also have an uh, an older woman like catherine john's wife who has not had the benefit of some of these experiences right. has grown up and married in a time before women were going to university before women were becoming doctors or you know mm-hmm. entering the law or um and her experience is very different. She has not been questioning. She did not question marriage in the, mm-hmm. 18, the late right. 1800s. And, uh, and so the experience of her daughters or some of the younger generation, younger generation of women she sees open up, I think, a chasm between, between her and them and, and make her look at that gap between those experiences and think, is this, is this a great emptiness? Uh, and someone like Catherine, you know, she, she knows her husband is gay and she is, so that's something she has accommodated in her life. And um, in the book, she comes to kind of question some of those decisions. Yeah, it's a really beautiful moment. Um, but I'm going to let people experience it for themselves. Obviously, you just mentioned Ibsen. There's a reference to Thomas Hardy. Um, Walt Whitman appears in the book. George Bernard Shaw <laughs> writes a letter um, in this book. So and obviously you had the biography of Oscar Wilde that sent you down to Simmons and Ellis. But what else were you reading as you created The New World? And I mean, this is separate from you as Tom Crew, writer and reader, but just in, in terms of shaping this world, what were some of the other reference points for you? Um, well, I mean, there was me dismissing my PhD earlier on, but um, <laughs> I um, one of the things that I think was a big help um, for me um, was the fact that I had spent four years doing this PhD, which was a, okay. about politics in the 1880s and right. 1890s. And because I was interested in um, politics as it was experienced and discussed in the public, mm-hmm. I just for four years just read newspapers uh for four, from the time for four years i just read tens of thousands of articles and speeches by politicians autobiographies memoirs you know studies whatever you name mm-hmm. it so i think right. I, I absorbed a huge amount mm-hmm. of late 19th century prose but mm-hmm. also just by virtue of reading that amount of stuff reading about politicians speaking in towns or london or whatever I just felt like I I had the the world in my head. I kind of knew what that world looked like. I could see it. I could kind of it was it came easily to me. I, that was the one thing I didn't really do much. I didn't feel like I needed to go and read about etiquette or what London looked like or what did a living room look like. Somehow, I mean, I'm sure the book is still. I'm sure there are still uh, errors, but I I felt like it just was there. I knew how people spoke. It, it was just. That was there. So that was that was that part. You know, I felt like I mm-hmm, had it mm-hmm. in my mind. I was I was there. But um 
in terms of some of the kind of more specific stuff, you know, I read about a, a big part was the reading about um, gay experience in the in that period, how it was lived, but also maybe let's start by saying how it was kind of intellectualized. Mm-hmm. This is stuff that's really new to me because one of the things the book brings out is the fact that lots of people, particularly in Europe, were thinking about homosexuality. How do we explain it? How do we? What is it if it's not a crime? If it's not kind of a sin or or crime, what is, what is it? How do we? Um, and not all those, not all the answers these people provided were acceptable by our standards. Right. Uh, but people were thinking about it. Um, and that's what my kind of characters um, of John and Henry, like their historical kind of uh, mm-hmm. antecedents, Simmons and Ellis, they are engaging with this kind of European thinking um, and they're finding models to try and understand and discuss homosexuality, which is where you get a word like inversion, which it might give us the creeps now or sound kind of unflattering, but for them, I think was seen as a step forward because it was it's a language to discuss it, which isn't you know sodomy and sin and so all of those steps forward that that was a big thing, kind of get mastering those debates in my head and kind of understanding all those intellectual currents um and also culturally where where that thinking about homosexuality's got mixed up with culture, so you mentioned mm-hmm. Whitman earlier on, and Whitman was a big figure for some of these men because he seemed in his poetry to be offering a model of what love between men could be and it was and we've kind of I think probably lost sight of this now but it was tied up with ideas of democracy about cross-class solidarity um, about nature and openness and um, sympathy so all these things were kind of tied tied in and it got linked in with socialism and and feminism because feminism was linked in with socialism. So all these things, again, come back together culturally in a kind of cultural mix. Um, so that's something fascinating that's going on. Um, and also then there's then there's the stuff about like, how did gay men live? What did they right. what did they do? What did they get up to? Where did they meet? Uh, you know, one of the things is that lots of men in Simmons included you know used to go down to the Serpentine the river in Hyde Park in London and watch the men swim where you the men could swim I think it was three hours in the morning in the river usually nude and so there was a very attractive uh, option for, for spectators of a certain kind um, so that's that gave me the idea of one of my opening scenes and in fact an amazing source was uh, was the book the real life book Sexual inversion, um, mm-hmm. which uh, my characters write in my novel, but the real life book is uh, is largely made up of case studies where they gave questionnaires to about I think there's about twenty five case studies in the book, and there you have the most amazing, and you can buy this book now, and I advise you rush out and buy it. Um, you have the most amazing uh, evidence uh, given by these men about their lives. They describe. You know, their first crushes, their first sexual experiences, uh, relationships they've had, what they like to do in bed. It's incredibly open. And almost all of them, even if they say, yes, I was agonized and and fretful and worried in the past, almost all of them say, I've come to terms with my sexuality. I don't want to change. I, I believe that I was made this way for a reason and there's nothing I can do about it. And that's very that was very powerful to read because it definitely reminded me that most 
gay people in the 19th century never got into trouble with the law, never got found out in, in that kind of public way, but but had people around them that they knew, who knew about them. People lived their lives and it might not be, it might not have been a perfect life. It might have been cramped and narrow and spoiled in all sorts of ways, but mm. people people lived. Um, so that's something I really wanted to to get across in the novel, that there are a range of gay characters in the novel who were living mm. different kinds of lives and enjoy, enjoying different kinds of experiences. And that's that's something I really wanted to get across. You're also wrestling with class. I mean, John's partner, Frank, who he meets at the Serpentine, is of a much lower class than John. And in a way, for some of John's family and friends, that's more of the scandal. I mean, certainly for some of the house staff, that's more of the scandal because Frank has a very noticeable London accent and people are sort of hung up on the fact that his clothes got much better and whatnot. And, you know, he has a nice life and he knows he has a nice life, but he does also love John. This isn't just, you know, I have a place to live and I've got clothes. This is a genuine love story between the two of them. And yet the class crossing is really uncomfortable for some people one of the things i wanted to achieve even before i started writing the novel was um you know we talked uh, just said about this idea that you know this whitmanite whitmanite idea yeah. of, of gay relationships being kind of clothed in all this idealism um and i was thinking about em forster's morris yep. and forster forster was a product of this tradition you know he mm-hmm. He came out of that kind of milieu, that way of thinking. Um, he had a famous, he wrote the book after meeting Edward Carpenter, who is a character in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went to Millthorpe, I think, Edward Carpenter's house, uh, which again is features in the, in the novel. Um, and he uh, was patted on the bum by uh, Carpenter's boyfriend. And he had this, uh, his eureka moment. And he went and wrote Morris, and Morris kind of expresses this idealism, um, which Carpenter represented, Simmons, Whitman, uh, about cross-class relationships, about gay relationships, allowing cross barriers to be class, allowing class barriers to be crossed. What I knew from my reading, of, and it's obvious to anyone who thinks about it, is that, of course, these relationships, which lots of gay men at the time practiced, you know, they did fancy working class men they did want us to be with working class men that there is also some real stuff going on there it's not straightforwardly great or brilliant because you know the class was bound up in the relationship maybe class was giving that sexual charge that that frisson um and it wasn't that straightforward or easy for these upper middle class men to have relationships with working class men you know and morris ends with morris running off to live in the woods with the gardener so one of the things i really wanted to do was challenge that to kind of to get under the idealism and show the trickiness of it show class really working and troubling that kind of relationship um so that's one of the things i really wanted to achieve with john and frank's relationship yes it's a love story but you know i try to show that there are kind of dubious undercurrents there both in their relationship that those two men are both aware of, but also in the way people react to them. And it just isn't that easy. It's just not that straightforward. They can't run off and live in the woods. They have to, they have to live in the in the moment and in the 
in the society they live in, that's hard. That's much harder. I also don't think we can really separate politics and art. <laughs> I'm one of those people who's just like, well, you can't separate the world that you exist in from the art that you create to, shall we say, understand the world you live in, or at least push us forward into a world we'd like to see. I mean, I just, I can't, I don't really care to separate the two, and I don't, I don't think they should be separated. But, you know, you mentioned earlier that you didn't write this book with a plan, and of course I'm sitting here going, wait, what? What? <laughs> All right, so you didn't write with a plan. You realize this is not a great idea when you're sitting down with the edits. <laughs> but what was the biggest surprise? You know, outside of the actual physical act of writing, what was the biggest surprise for you as you created the new life? It was fairly agonizing, really. There are certain scenes, there are certain scenes that really, there are scenes I knew I was going to write, you know, maybe two, three years before I wrote them. There were, I say I didn't have a plan, but I, and I didn't, but I did have, I did have some things I knew I wanted to have. So there's a, you'll know there's a scene in the, there's a scene in the London fog um, well, that's a, a great moment oh no <laughs> if you're talking about frank in the fog yeah yes, frank in the fog yeah um, that was fantastic and that's a scene i don't think i'd even started writing the book at all but i knew that that i was going to write that scene because i'd come across this hg wells quote where he said you know the thing about the fog was you know something like you know in a square inch of fog you could do anything. You could squeeze a hand. You could do this, and no one would know. And I thought that's such an amazing idea. What could you? What could you do in the fog? Um, so that was so things like that. When I would read, I eventually reached that moment, and that was a real pleasure to write. Or reaching the moment where Catherine gets to have her say is a real moment. And in fact, the moment where John and Henry's, uh, you know, arcs cross for the first time in the you know, they don't meet for a very long time in the novel. So for me, I, I hope the reader has some of the excitement I had because I was quite excited to have them in the room for the first time together. Um, and then the book became quite different once, once they could be in the same room together. Those are moments when you reach what feels like a milestone. But, but overall, it's more a thing about <laughs> there was a moment, I remember there was a moment when I thought, this actually is a novel. And once you realise something is a novel, that, of course, presents a set of new challenges because <laughs> then you think, does it work as a novel? Does it, uh, is the pacing right? Is the, is the, are the characters working? Are they developing properly? You know, you get all these new intellectual challenges. But that is a beautiful moment when you realise this is real. It's got a life. It's alive. It's alive. Who are some of the writers who've made you Tom Crew writer? I, I feel very, um, you know, some writers say they can't read fiction when they're, mm -hmm. when they're writing, which, which uh, just wouldn't work for me at all, partly because you wouldn't read a novel for four, four years, which would, right. be, would be a terrible way to live. Um, but also I feel like I'm a big sort of sponge and I, I'm constantly inspired and energised by what I'm reading. And I you know there's, there's hundreds of points through the book where I can think, I was I know who I was reading then that gave me that idea or that's made me that was what made me try this and that you know there's I love this Saul Bellow quote you know a, a writer is a reader who is moved to imitation that's beautiful and that's that's how I feel so all through the book there are all sorts of strange moments you know probably there's a Joan Didion sentence in there there's a 
there's Joyce Carol Oates, there's Simenon, there's um, James Kelman, the kind of working class Scottish writer. There's all sorts of people you wouldn't expect to be in there. Um, but there are also probably people you might ex more expect to be there. You know, I I definitely, you know, I worship Henry James. I think he's a, I never feel more intimidated, and, but also maybe more alive than when I feel like I'm in Henry James's brain, his huge brain. Uh -huh. but, and I love, I love his, I love his sentences and uh, he's a great inspiration. Uh, but I also, um I also love Dickens and Dickens again kind of gave me put fire in my belly at various points in the novel and um people in the 20th century you know um Elizabeth Bowen I think is a marvelous writer um uh Sybil Bedford oh, I don't know how many people Sybil Bedford but she's a, again a very distinctive prose stylist um Henry Green is an amazing amazing writer um, who also got me very excited at points. So I see myself in, a, in some kind of line of descent. I'm not sure whether it <laughs> constitutes a family tree or not, but um, those are just some of the writers who um, who I can think of off the top of my head. So what's next? I mean, obviously you have this this day job that demands lots of rigorous thinking and reading and writing, but is there a second novel? <laughs> uh, there is, there is. I am... Uh, it exists. It's about uh, 45,000 words long, which is pretty good for me. That's pretty, you know, I started writing at the beginning of the year. That's pretty fast for me, uh, especially considering I've been very distracted um, with preparations for, the, for this novel coming out. So I can't, I don't really want to say anything more. That's fine. Tom, honestly, all I'm really, really, really hoping for is more novels. More novels, please. <laughs> Whether they're like the new life or not. More novels. You have a great voice on the page. It is so, so delightful to read you, even when things, you know, get a little sad and somber. But this, The New Life, is really, really a wonderful read, and I cannot wait for other readers to pick it up. Thank you so much for joining us. Tom Crew, The New Life is out now. Thank you. Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of titles to go along with today's wonderful double shot episode for Calm Toybin and Tom Crew. My name is Mark, I'm here from my Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by one of my favorite book buddies, Madison. Hello, Madison. Hi, I'm Madison, and I'm here from my store in Indianapolis. Fantastic. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. I am very excited for this episode. I think Colm Toybin is a wonderful author, and I'm reading The New Life by Tom Crew right now, and it is magnificent. I'm going to recommend a book uh, for Guests at the Feast. Um, it's a collection of essays. Very, very stoked to read this one. Uh, and it made me think of another collection of essays that I think is really special, and that is Homo Irealis by Andre Asimov. You may know him from his tremendous work, Call Me By Your Name, um, very, very popular. This essay collection, though, just, I think, really, truly highlights his talents as a writer. It centers around the idea of the might have beens that aren't necessarily real, but still feel very real, and that people often have more memory and 
mental attachment to the things that could have happened rather than the things that actually took place. So it's this way that moments can kind of linger in your mind and make you question your place in the world. He uses all kinds of forms of art like poetry, cinema, literature, architecture, sculpture as a way to examine this concept of the might-haves or the could've, would've, should'ves. I think everybody has those moments where we wonder if we've made the right choice or are on the right path or are rethinking the memory that we have of a certain moment or a certain decision or a certain emotional space that our head was in that maybe is a little bit more murky than we want to admit. And I think Asuman does this beautiful job of painting that concept in a way that anybody can insert themselves into because we've all been there. We will all be there. Uh, it's a thing that we all do. And the way that he brings this to light is just gorgeous. I, I love this book so much. So please check out Homo Irealis by Andre Asuman. Madison, what do you have for us? Today, I am so excited about The New Life by Tom Crew. So I thought the book that needed to be paired with it for the subject matter of The New Life, because I believe this author would blurb their book if he were alive today, <laughs> is the collected Oscar Wilde. We all know I love Dorian Gray. It's my favorite classic. So this time I'm recommending a collection of his work. So you have Oscar Wilde's collection. You have his plays, his poems, some of his short stories. It includes the importance of being earnest, the portrait of Mr. W.H. One I want to focus on is his very, very last work he published before he died, which was The Ballad of Reading Jail, which he wrote about his experience in jail and what you'll see in The New Life. The plot takes them up to the point where they're about to publish a book and then Oscar Wilde goes to jail in this story. So I thought by recommending The Ballad of Reading Jail that it would shed some light as a companion to the new life because you would get to see what people are like during that time period, how they wrote, how Oscar Wilde wrote. I think his subject matter pairs very well with the subject matter of this book. And that one in particular, it was his experience in prison, why he went to jail. I could go on and on about the Oscar Wilde trial and how his works were used against him to get him imprisoned. We have a whole band book table <laughs> at our store. And what I think is so important about this one is that a snippet of it is engraved on Oscar Wilde's tomb. And it is, the snippet is, and alien tears will fill for him. Pity's long broken urn, for his mourners will be outcast men and outcasts always mourn. And I think that is just like so powerful, especially like with what we're talking about today, what that book is about, the time period it takes place in. So I feel like if you want to kind of get in more to the zone while you're reading The New Life, you should also pick up The Collected Oscar Wilde. You can find it at your local Barnes & Noble. It's our edition. <laughs> and read it along with it. I think it will add just that much more flavor to it. So that is all I have. Uh. Fantastic. I knew, I knew you were going to pick Oscar Wilde for this. Uh, I was just waiting because I know you're a mega fan. Wonderful. Well, that is all we have. 
Well, yeah, I know we could do this all day, but that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning into Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN River Crossing. Thanks for reading, everybody. Thanks for listening also. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.